Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Have you ever wondered what happens to a person who exchanges the truth of God for a lie? Perhaps you know somebody who has made this troubling exchange. They were once walking in the truth of God's Word, but now they have created a new reality. It is their reality, their truth, which conflicts with God's truth, placing this type of exchanger in the unenviable position of going to war with God. Paul talked about such a person in Romans 1, verses 21 through 25. What I would like to do is to share with you what happens to a person who exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me in our coffee shop. I am very glad that you are here. My name is Rick Thomas, and as I have already introduced to you what I want to talk about, this is a serious subject, and what I've done is I have written an article, and the title of the article is, What Happens to a Person Who Exchanges the Truth of God for a Lie? Many of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. I want to talk about Romans chapter 1. Also, if you want to read what I'm about to share with you, you can go on our website, lifeovercoffee.com, and I have this full-length article. It is more than 2,000 words. There is the podcast that is embedded. The video is embedded in the article as well. And then I have created a mind map, a visual walkthrough of the problem and the solution for the person who exchanges the truth of God for a lie. I like using mind maps. I have several of them in our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com, and you're welcome to all of them. I'm going to explain this one to you. Those of you who are watching my video, listening to the podcast, you will not be able to see it, but you can have it. Just go to lifeovercoffee.com, and again, you can get the full-length article. There's a print button, by the way, at the bottom of all of our articles. You can print them off into a PDF. Uh, You can also share them with others. You can print off this mind map too, and you can scratch it up and make notes and use it personally and use it with others. All right, uh, let's talk about what happens to a person who exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Now, I'll begin by sharing the text that I referenced earlier. It is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. This is what Paul said. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that is Romans 21 through 25. Any time that, that you or I decide to switch, to exchange, We switch from adhering to God's truth to clinging to an alternate fluid reality. Now, it's always a fluid reality because any time that we remove ourselves from the canon, the rule, uh, 
The, the, the unchanging, unalterable, infallible God's word, anytime we switch from adhering to that, whatever new truth that we create will be fluid. It will always be evolving. It'll be situational ethics. It is not the true reality, but a fluid reality. And when we do that, there will be a process of what I call soul degradation, a deteriorating of the soul, which is what Paul was talking about as he was laying out what happens to a group of people who knew God, but for reasons that are not entirely clear because he doesn't explain, and that's fine. But what he does explain is is sobering enough, and for whatever reasons the were, were for them to exchange the truth of God, they decided to walk away from him, choosing instead to worship and serve the create uh, the creature more than the creator. Now, it was at that point of departure from God that things became progressively worse for them. And that's the admonition for me as I was working through this article. As many of you know that have been around our coffee shop for a while, you know that my articles actually are personal devotions because I try to wrestle through these texts. And as I was wrestling through this text, I got to the point to where it became very clear that anytime you walk away from God's truth, even in a minimal way, things will become progressively worse for you. And again, that is our, our warning. Their lives, the people that Paul was referring to, began a slow march of deterioration of both body and soul. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about David uh, when he said, When I kept silent about my sin, God's hand was heavy upon me, that my body was wasting away. This is David hiding the sin that he had with Bathsheba, and he was experiencing the degradation of the soul, the deterioration of body and soul, because he chose to press the truth of God out of his life. And that is exactly what happens. God is pressing down. In fact, Paul said it in very stark terms. When we walk away from God's truth, God begins to press his wrath down. Yeah. He he presses his wrath down on us. What we are feeling in this degradation of the soul, the deterioration of the body and soul, we are feeling God's wrath raining down from heaven, because if you back up just a few verses from what I just shared with you, this is what Paul said. This is 118 in Romans. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth And you could say, suppress the truth of God out of their lives. And so Paul is writing about the displeasure of God raining down from heaven on any person who chooses to push God's truth out of their lives. Now, maybe you have experienced this. I have. When I walk away from God's truth, the conviction of God comes over me. And if I continue to stay in that walking away determinative posture, then God's wrath intensifies on my life. And this passage in 118 
And what I shared earlier in 20 through 25, it applies to all of us, not just the determined sinner who is actively and angrily suppressing the truth of God out of their lives, because we could read this passage and think, yes, that describes our culture, and it does. But Paul tells us about a universal, absolute cause and effect, regardless of how big or nasty the sin is. He is saying the the displeasurable wrath of God automatically descends from on high when a person chooses to sin, whether it's your cute toddler or the hardened criminal. This is a universal truth that applies to every human on the planet with no exceptions. And Paul uses the language of suppressing the truth of God out of their lives. I want to think just a little bit about this idea of suppressing the truth of God out of their lives, which it means to push aside, to push God's truth aside. God's truth is evident, but you don't want to adhere to it. It's sort of like you're looking for something else. You you push that out of the way so that you can get to something else. It is a voluntary choice to ignore what is right. In verse 21, he talks about how nobody has an excuse for pushing the truth of God out of their lives. He says that we are all without excuse because everyone has a God awareness. We have a a hidden internal morality that helps us to distinguish between right and wrong. And so whether you are a Jewish person who he's writing to or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. In fact, he goes on to expand on this idea in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, when he talks about the non-believing Gentile, those folks who do not have the Bible, but they know the things that are contained in the Bible. You see, knowing the truth, knowing what is right and wrong, is not the exclusive domain of the religious person. It doesn't matter who you are. Or it doesn't matter how much we know about God, none of us, the cute toddler or the hardened criminal, none of us can get away with using excuses when responding incorrectly to God. We are all without a defense. Again, going back to Romans 1.20, we have no excuse. And so for whatever reason, some people choose to alter God's truth into another kind of truth that is more aligned with their preferences, a fluid truth that will change as as situations, circumstances, relationships change. And each time a person does this, they are setting themselves up for a displeasurable response from God. Uh, now the, the, the field of play has changed. It is a battlefield, and it is the person who has walked away from God doing war against God. And you see an idea of this in James 4, 6, where James says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word oppose the proud or the idea of opposing the proud and that passage is God is a warring army against any proud person. 
And if you and I decide to sin, meaning we are walking away from God, at least in that episodic moment, we should feel the intensified displeasure of God raining down on us because we're suppressing the truth of God out of our lives. Now, that should be a good thing, by the way. Conviction should be a good thing. Imagine not having any warning whatsoever. You have no internal warning system letting you know that you have done wrong. That would be an awful thing. Think about your physical body. Let's say that you had some disease in your body, but there was there was no signal, there was no sign, there was no mechanism that let us know that there was something wrong. You went to the doctor, you got under the radar, you had an MRI, but nothing showed. There was nothing evident, nothing visible, but you're slowly dying. Well, thankfully, we have a medical community with that, that have uh, been the recipients of God's unmerited favor, and, and they have the ability to find these things that are wrong with us. In the spiritual realm, we, we have another radar. We have another MRI called our conscience, and when we do wrong, our consciences should sense a, a conviction, a twinge of guilt. And that is a good thing. And I've seen that in my life. Uh, For example, if you you take maybe my most minor sin in my marriage, whatever that is, whatever that minor sin is, it puts me in an adversarial relationship with God, primarily, but then also with my wife. But when I suppress the truth out of my life and regarding my marriage in this illustration, then God is no longer for me regarding my sanctification. You know, in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, when I suppress the truth of God out of my life, he is no longer for me in my sanctification. And I'm modifying that by saying sanctification because, as you know, I can never lose my salvation by my sins, but I can impede my relational well-being when I choose to do my own thing by pushing God's truth out of my life. It interrupts the shalom that I should have with the Lord. Of course, it interrupts the shalom that I should have with my wife, too. None of us can can sin and then expect everything to be okay between ourselves and, and the person with whom we sin. God's Word is true. You push His truth out of your life, and you will incur His wrath. His displeasure. Sometimes when I talk about suppressing the truth out of your life, I'll use the illustration of a weenie balloon. You know those long balloons that some clowns and other people fill up with air and make figurines like dogs and so forth? Well, if you take a a weenie balloon, and let's say you fill it full of water, okay, and then you squeeze that weenie balloon full of water, squeeze it right in the middle, what's going to happen? The ends are going to become exaggerated. You can't press down on something without an effect, without an awkward effect happening on the extremities. And and that illustrates kind of what happens when you put pressure on the center and it affects the ends, the balloon becomes out of balance, and so does our lives 
when we push or squeeze the truth of God out of our lives, we become awkward. We become awkward with God. We become awkward with others. Uh, You'll see that maybe perhaps uh, those of you who have children when they were very young and they sinned, they stole some candy out of the candy dish or whatever, and they they begin to act awkward. And you'll see that as you pay attention to your children. There's something going on, and as you continue to investigate, you realize that their consciences are convicting them. They are pressing the truth of God out of their lives. And when you put that pressure on the weenie balloon, the extremities become awkward, and there's relational awkwardness going on here. And you're not quite sure what it is exactly, but you realize there is something going on that's not quite right. You're no longer in step with that individual because that person is no longer in step with God. When God's displeasure comes into our lives because we choose to reject His truth, we cannot help but live in an awkward, out-of-balance life. We cannot be Jesus-normal. When God is standing in opposition to us, as he is opposing the proud, as that warring army is coming against us, as that his wrath, his displeasure is raining down from heaven on top of us. Now, what I've done here that I will not be able to show on the video or the podcast is I've created a, a mind map to help you to visually see some of the steps that I'm talking about here. And, and you can go uh, to the mind map. You can go to this article that I'm sharing with you, and, and you can look at it, and it will really help you visually to understand what I'm saying. But I'll try to articulate it the best that I can uh, for the video and also for the podcast. And, and so what we have here is a person who is making a life decision. He's making a decision, and that decision can be virtually anything. Let's make it um, a hyperbolic decision so it will be easy to understand. And so let's say that we have a, a seven-year-old child, and this child is making the decision that I'm going to steal that candy out of the candy dish. All right, so whatever the decision is, uh, what you want to do is to process all decisions through the Philippians 4.8 filter. We run every decision in our lives through the Philippians 4.8 filter. You, you know what Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is anything worthy of praise and, and anything excellent, then do this, do these things. And so that creates a filter for all of our decisions not just stealing candy out of a candy dish, but any other decision, you run that decision through that filter. Is this true? Is this honorable, pure, just, lovely, commendable? Is this worthy of praise? Is there excellence in this? Now, if it goes through that filter and everything is is okay, then you can proceed in the decision that you are trying to make. But of course, in some of the decisions that we make, we are unsure if if this is the decision that we should take. And so therefore, we have another balancing means to help us to continue to think through that decision. Now, I trust the person who is trying to steal candy from the candy dish has already come to the conclusion that, no, this is not pure. This is not just. This is not commendable. This is not lovely. This is not honorable. 
this is not praiseworthy. This is not excellent. Hopefully they come to that conclusion and the decision is no, I will not do that. But then there are other decisions that we make that need a little more analysis. And one of the things that we teach, in fact, I have a one-hour webinar on our website in our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. It's called How to Make a Biblical Decision. And one of the things that I teach is that we have a, a, a balancing of, of four means of grace that God gives us uh, in order to make a decision. And I'll put these in question form for you. And so we'll go back to the candy dish of stealing candy. Let's say the kid still is, is not convinced going through the Philippians 4.8 filter. All right. So question number one, then, of these four additional questions, what does the Bible say? The canon. What does the canon say? The canon is the rule, the straight line. What, what, is, what does the canon say about what I want to do? Number two, what does the Spirit say? How is the comforter illuminating me as I think about, as I work through this decision? The canon, the comforter. What does my conscience say, my inner voice say about what I want to do? Now we have the canon, the comforter, and the conscience. And then we have finally the community. What does the body of Christ, an appropriate person, one or two people, who have the competence in God's word to be able to bring insight on what you want to do? And so what does the community say? And so you now search the canon, you ask the Spirit to eliminate your mind, you listen to your conscience, and you balance all of this out with the community. And so after seeking sound advice from these four means of grace, the person should be able to proceed, knowing that the Lord's favor is on their lives to make this decision because they're not trying to push their agenda of course, the kid trying to steal the candy out of the candy dish, hopefully by going through Philippians 4.8. And after uh, reading the canon, searching the canon, and listening to the Spirit and their conscience and the community, unless his child has an older brother that says, hey, I believe it's all right for you to do this. Well, that would be a problem, of course. But hopefully they did not steal the candy. And God's favor is on them because, as James 4, 6 says, not only does he oppose the proud, but God gives empowering favor to the humble. And so this child will continue to experience God's pleasure because they chose not to push the truth out of God's, out of their lives as they have gone through the filter of, of Philippians 4, 8 and these other four means of grace that I have mentioned. But... Some folks want to do what they want to do regardless of what God or anyone else thinks about what they want to do. If that is their response, well, first of all, before we jump on them and fuss at them about sinning is what I'm talking about, you want to consider at least five possible reasons that they are rejecting God in this moment and rejecting sound advice. And so now we have a person who wants to suppress the truth of God out of their lives. And so there is a process of engaging them. We don't want to be mean-spirited. We want, don't want to be harsh or unkind. We want to uh, engage them as much as they will let us engage them appropriately, biblically, with, with analysis. And so as you are thinking about the person who seems to be pushing the truth of God out of their lives, you want to at least 
Think about these five possible considerations. Number one, it could be that they're angry with God and they no longer care about what, what is right or wrong. Now, if that is true, well, then you have a couple of problems. The thing that they are doing in the moment, the episodic sin event that brought you to their attention or brought their attention to you rather. And then you have this underlying anger, anger with God, which has been ongoing for a while. And you'll find some people who are so disappointed with God that eventually they just don't care anymore and they fully push the truth of God out of their lives. And so there's two things going on, the sin event, the suppression of truth in the moment, but this longstanding disappointment or anger with God that they have been carrying with them for a while. That is one of five considerations. Number two, they did something impulsively, not thinking about right or wrong, and they are unwilling to return and make things right. Sometimes people do something impulsively. This is not a pattern in their lives, but it is an impulsive event. But at this juncture, they're not willing to go and, and make things right. Maybe you can speak to them in that moment, and they will go and make things right and not continue to be at war with God. Number three. They tried to keep from yielding to an ongoing temptation, but they decided to give up and go their own way. Now, you'll find this a lot with people who have just tried and tried and tried to overcome a sin pattern, whatever that may be. And then out of that frustration, they just give up on God. They don't care anymore because they can't get over whatever that ongoing temptation is. And so they just give in and go their own way and fully suppress the truth of God out of their lives. Number four, they have always been the way they are and have never known any other way to live. So they go with it. Now, that would be me. For the first quarter century of my life, I was an unregenerate person. I did not know God. I did not know any other way to live. I had created a new normal, a fluid reality that I lived in. I didn't know any other way. Now, someone came to me, and this is where your engagement with them could have that kind of dramatic effect. And so I was the person who, this is the way it's always been. This is the way I'm supposed to live. And, and so I did. And my conscience was becoming harder and harder. Number five. They sinned and they liked it, and they don't want to let go of it. Now, all of us experience the pleasure of sin for a season, and so all of us should be able to relate to this. But some people like it so much that they refuse to let go of it. And my father would be a person like that. As my mother told me years ago that when he took his first drink at 21 years of age, she pleaded with him not to go to the liquor store or wherever he bought his alcohol. I don't, I don't know. But he did, and when he did, for whatever motivated him to do that, I don't know, but when he did, he liked it, and he never stopped. He pushed the truth of God out of his life along with his wife, my mother, and of course, he had the degradation of body and soul. He died when he was 42, 21 years later after he took his first drink. They sinned, and they liked it, and they don't want to let it go. Regardless of how they got to the point of their lousy lifestyle choice, they prefer to stick with their poor choice rather than do the hard thing. And it is a hard thing, which is to die to themselves and to walk with the Lord. And we all know that it is hard. The call to die is much harder at first glance than the desire to do your thing. The temptation to do your thing looks easier. It looks prettier. 
It looks like a, a, a wide berth, and, and it is. Narrow is the way of dying to yourself. And so at first glance, it looks like going the sinful road is the best road. And it's at this decisive point that the person begins exchanging the truth of God for a lie. At this intersection, though they have not yet exchanged it entirely, but they are well on their way to the dark side. Now, what I want to do before I continue on is I want to review what has happened thus far in chronological order. There's 11 steps that I have laid out for you. If you didn't catch them all, I want to repeat them to you in short bullet points. Number one, they wanted to do something. Perhaps it was a lifestyle choice. Number two, they analyzed whether it was the right thing to do. They're at the intersection. Number three, they may or may not have sought help in their decision-making. You remember those means of grace that I was talking about? If we're unsure if it's the right thing to do to steal the candy out of the candy dish, enlist help. They may or may not have sought help in their decision-making. Number four, they decided to push the truth, suppress the truth of God out of their lives. I'm taking the candy. Number five, God is no longer for them. Now there's this adversarial relationship between them and God. And that's point number six. His wrath begins to rain down from heaven against them. Number seven, they are at war with God. Number eight, their minds began the process of turning futile and dark. And you also see this same language from Paul in Ephesians 4, 17, 18, and 19. Number nine, the path to disobedience has begun. That wide berth, they are now on it, even at the, uh, the starting of it. Number 10, they're making themselves okay with the great truth exchange. I'll talk about that in just a moment. They have to make themselves okay with what they're doing so they can live with themselves, which leads to point number 11, the desensitizing to the truth of God. And that is a dangerous place to be. You see, Paul talked about how our souls churn inside of us when our consciences struggle with God's morality. I referenced this earlier in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that the Gentiles who do not have the law do the things contained in the law. They are accusing or excuse their consciences are accusing or excusing themselves. And so our consciences have this internal struggle with God's morality. Any decision to do the wrong thing does not mitigate the noise that is going on in our souls. Just because we decided to do what was wrong does not mean that our struggle between right and wrong has subsided. In fact, our struggle between right and wrong will intensify at least initially. This is the beauty and the goodness of conviction. You want the intensification of soul noise when you do wrong so that you can be alarmed that you have done wrong so that you can respond rightly to it. Even the unregenerate conscience 
fights the battle with soul noise, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Though the person has suppressed God's truth from his life, his conscience is still active and responding to his wrong choice. The only way for him to get rid of his sin is by repentance. But if that is not the option, then what he will do, what we all do, if we're, if we're going to say no to repentance, then what we're going to do impulsively is we're going to be a, begin a process of rescripting our consciences so that we can fully exchange the truth of God for a lie and live with ourselves at the same time. If we're going to continue to go down this path and choose not to repent, then we have to rescript what we have done. And this is what we see in our culture. It's so blatant that they are rescripting the truth so that they can live with themselves an alternate truth that they have created to satiate their lustful desires. With the cannon sitting on the shelf, the comforter turned down <clears throat> the comforter turned down low to where the spirit is no longer illuminating the mind and the person dismisses the community. The last thing for him to do is to shut his conscience down. No canon, no comforter, no community, and now no conscience, so I don't have to hear that voice pinging inside of me at every turn. Now, there are four ways for him to alter his conscience, to turn the soul noise down, to dull his conscience, to harden his conscience so that he can live successfully, and I put that in air quotes because he can't. But when he has finished turning his conscience down, he will be able to do whatever it is that he wants to do without feeling. Sometimes people will say, well, how can he do that and, and just not sense that anything is wrong easily? He, he, has been, he has been living this life of rescripting his conscience for so long that now he's in a place not dull but actually hard to where he can do whatever he wants without feeling. The four ways that you can turn the noise down, rescript your conscience, one, you can justify your actions, meaning you're declaring yourself not guilty of any wrongdoing, justification. You can rationalize your actions by comparing your life to others, it is a means of excusing ourselves from any liability as we compare ourselves to others. At least I'm not like that. I may be bad, but I'm not that bad. And so we can justify ourselves. We can rationalize what we do. We can also blame our actions on other people or specific events in our lives. If that had not had happened, I would not have responded that way. If that traffic had not been like that, I would not have flipped that person off. I would not have yelled at this other individual. We can blame it away. And every time we do that, we are rescripting truth. So we can justify, we can rationalize, we can blame, and we can alleviate. Alleviation is, is alleviating any discomfort that we may feel, and it medicates the mind to a new truth. Maybe that's binge-watching on Netflix. Maybe that's eating excessively, shopping excessively, drinking excessively. It, it could be anything that, uh, that is comforting to us to alleviate the conviction that we feel in our souls. And any or all four of these will begin to rescript the truth. What I've been sharing with you is titled, What Happens to a Person Who Exchanges the Truth for a Lie? And because repentance is out of the question, the individual has no choice but to turn to these four noise reducers, 
justification, rationalization, alleviation, and blaming. There are four noise reducers that helps him to rescript his conscience so that he can live with his version of truth. And once this great exchange is complete, where he has successfully exchanged God's truth for a lie, uh, then he can go on with, with no conviction and virtually no ceiling or no limitation as to the sin that he can live in. This is no man's land. It is flying blind in a storm. It is the worst possible place for any human to be. God is not with him. God is not for him. God is not helping him. His mind is evolving into darkness. He is becoming desensitized to the truth. He has set aside the people who can help him the most. He is on his own, which is a, a precursor to hell. Uh, hell is without God. He is on his own. And so I want to wrap up by talking to three different demographics. For those who are going dark, for those who are dark, and for those who know someone living in darkness. So for those of you who are going dark, you are making these choices, meaning you're making these choices to go down the broad road. Let this appeal be your warning and guide. Don't choose the four ways to reduce the noise in your soul, justification, rationalization, alleviation, blame. Don't make what you do okay when it's not okay for you to do what you want to do. Choose repentance. You can do that by letting someone know what is happening with you. You can begin changing today. Number two, for those of you who are dark, if the light is off, you've made your bed and you have no plans to change your lifestyle, let this be your warning. Hear the words of David, when I kept silent about my sin, God's hand was heavy upon me, my body was wasting away as the summer heat. You can do what you want, but please be aware that God has stern warnings for those who persist in their way, especially if you call yourself a Christian. For those of you who are going dark, for those who are dark, and for those who know someone who is dabbling on the dark side. If you know someone trying to exchange the truth of God for a lie, please warn them by any means that is appropriate to warn them. To be desensitized to the truth of God is, a precarious, is as precarious as you can be. And so if you can, please speak the truth in love to them. You're welcome to use what I've said here and share it with them as you make your appeals, as you come alongside those that you love. I have titled this uh, article, the video, and the podcast, What Happens to a Person Who Exchanges the Truth of God for a Lie. Thank you for joining me in the coffee shop. You can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. Please check out all of our resources. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.